Welcome to the Heartbreak to Happiness Show with Sara Davison. If you're struggling with a breakup and you feel shocked, angry, betrayed, devastated, or sad and alone, then this podcast is for you. Best-selling author and award-winning host, Sara Davison, shares how you too can get on with your life to heal, grow, and move from heartbreak to happiness. Here's your host, Sara Davison. Welcome back to the show. And today, my guest is Michelle Dewsbury. Michelle is an international philanthropist, speaker, author, and coach who has traveled the world as an advocate for the less fortunate. In August 2016, Michelle focused her efforts on ending domestic violence. Her desire to help victims of domestic abuse came from personal experience in such a relationship. In July 2017, Michelle founded Unsilenced Voices, a non-profit focused on inspiring change in communities around the globe by encouraging victims to break free and survivors to speak up about domestic violence and sexual assault. She has since completed and published her personal memoir, But I Love Him. So I'm super excited to welcome Michelle Dewsbury to the show. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm very excited to share with your audience. It is a real honor to have you because I am super excited about your story. So would you like to share for my listeners, bearing in mind that a lot of my listeners are going through heartbreak, they're in relationships, maybe that aren't working out, or they've just got out of a relationship that isn't working. So I'm really excited for you to share your story with them. All right. Well, um, here we go. So here's a bit about me. I was born in the 80s to two amazing parents. My mom and my dad stayed together their whole lives. Um, they were very loving. They were young when they had my brother and I. So they were still kind of in their party stage and whatnot. But we moved around a lot. My dad joined the military when I was young. And we began moving when I was just... I don't know, seven years old. And we moved the first time for an incident that my mom was got in trouble for. And then my dad was in boot camp at the time. And we'll talk about this later, but I was taken away from my parents for a few months and internalized that thinking that it was my fault. So at seven years old, I learned very quickly to walk on eggshells, even though it was a subconscious feeling, I made sure that I was always on my best behavior. So my mom or dad wouldn't get rid of me again. Well, growing up, we moved a lot in childhood. And I remember relying on our family, my mom and my dad and my brother, because moving around in a military family, it's very difficult. We had to make friends very quickly, leave those friends very quickly, and then try to remake friends while going to school. So I became best friends with my mom. And I um, I really cherished her love and her wit and her charm. And I was definitely a daddy's girl. Well, fast forward my life until I'm about 16 years old. I was babysitting at the time and I wanted a real job. I didn't think babysitting was a real job. So I was like, mom, you work in the restaurant industry. Will you please train me? And she said, sure. And I began as a hostess and then a waitress and then worked my way up to bartender and manager. And, you know, in the beginning I was making more money as a babysitter than I was a hostess, <laughs> but it all worked out. Right. And I, I, I loved the restaurant industry. I spent over 15 years in the restaurant industry. And the reason why I liked it so 
much is I got to interact with people. I've always loved psychology and sociology and learning about how people work, what their dreams and visions are, uh, why they do the things that they do. Well, fast forward, I'm, I go to college for a year and and I'm still, you know, living at home. And I, I decide, you know, I want something more. I love this restaurant work, but I want to do something else. And at that time, my dream was to become a movie star. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. A movie star. I pack up my car and I drive my happy little butt to Hollywood, California to be a movie star. And things are going well. You know, I'm starring in independent films and starring in plays and doing commercials. So I feel like I am on my way to success and stardom. Well, I end up meeting a boy, roughly 2011, blonde haired, blue eyed, tall, handsome, entrepreneur, makes good money, knows where he wants to go in life. And I fell. I fell head over heels for this guy. We'll call him Paul. And for the first few months of our relationship, things were going well. We were going to ball games and sporting events and concerts. And he was courting me and sending me flowers and text messages every day. And I thought that he was going to be my Prince Charming. So we accelerated our relationship. And I moved in quite early, like three, four months into our relationship, I moved in with him. And shortly after that, my head went through the drywall. Wow. And I realized that this was the beginning stages of a domestic violence relationship. I stayed with Paul for four years. During those four years, I endured psychological manipulation, physical violence, sexual abuse, and financial abuse. There were multiple times where I was beat for many, many hours, um, definitely could have died. And there is a cycle in domestic violence. And we'll talk about that for your listeners and the walking on eggshells. And then the apology stage, the apology stage is what really keeps most victims trapped in abusive Mm. relationships. And that's what kept me trapped. Well, fast forward four years And I finally escape the relationship and I sit in front of my computer, very similar to what we're doing now on Zoom and using these virtual platforms. And I just began to write and I don't know why I just wanted to write my story. I didn't understand what I went through or what I was still going through at the time, but I needed to get it out. So when I started to write and then read it back to myself, then it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got myself trapped in this type of relationship. And it goes back to when I was young and taken away from my parents, I internalized all of that. So I would always walk on eggshells around them. So when Paul entered my life and gave me a little bit of love here and there, and then I learned to walk on eggshells, not to trigger him so he would attack me, it was almost a normal feeling. And that's how I got trapped. I never experienced abuse when I was young, but neglect and and that internalized fear of my family leaving caused me to stay in that abusive relationship. Well, 
when I wrote, I, I figured, okay, well, I got to do something. I, I feel called to do something about this. So me being in Hollywood, I wrote and performed a 65 minute solo play about my experience in domestic violence called, but I love him performed that in 2016 at the Hollywood fringe festival and the white fire solo fest. And that's when things started to change. People started coming up to me telling me their stories of abuse, thanking me for speaking up because now it's given them hope. And again, I decided I have to do something even more because I started to understand that the statistics are staggering, that there are so many individuals, men and women, LGBTQIA, you name it, are going through domestic violence. So I started a nonprofit organization in 2017 called Unsilenced Voices. We work in Ghana, Sierra Leone, just expanded to Rwanda in 2020, and we're expanding to the United States to do a domestic violence awareness tour. That's what we're raising funds for. So as soon as we get those funds and COVID lifts, of course. And then from there, I wrote my first book, same title as my play called But I Love Him. And you can find that on my website, michellejewsgray.com. And then I've been speaking on stages all around the world. So in March 2020, I got stuck in Egypt trying to come home when COVID happened mm-hmm. and shut down. It was crazy. Um, but I've been on over 65 different virtual podcasts and summits since March. Uh, before that, I was speaking speaking on live stages, and just telling my story and coaching individuals on how to overcome obstacles and trauma. Because if I can do it, so can you. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. (laughs) Wow. I mean, that is a story, Michelle, and an incredible one. And one of the things I'm sure my listeners are going to be thinking, well, how did you manage to get out? Because, you know, all that abuse, different types of abuse, psychological, physical, sexual, economic, how on earth did you find? Because when you're in that situation, your confidence is low, your self-worth is low. How did you manage to turn that around? I started to realize a couple years into the relationship that something didn't feel right. I didn't understand it was domestic violence. Like I said, I, I had no idea what I was going through, but it didn't feel right in my stomach and my belly and my chest. And I started taking more precaution. So I used to carry my credit card with me and my boots. So Paul would always want to carry my purse for me or leave my purse in the car because he would always want to take care of me when we went out. And then oftentimes when we went out is when he would lash out. So I would have a credit card available to go to a hotel and just leave if something were to happen. And then I started to realize that he was financially controlling me. I wasn't allowed to have a job. So I would actually pay our bills with his account that he allowed me to. So I would double pay the car payment that was also in my name. And the little bit of cash that he would leave around the house, I would take. And I would keep for myself because I needed the money, you know, without financial independence, then you are dependent on that person. So I first figured out how to break free financially from him and he demolished my credit. So after, after I had left, he stopped paying our bills and everything like that. So my credit plummeted. But look at me, I'm back now, right? And it just took a little bit of time, but I had to escape. And my breaking point was when I found out he was having affairs on me. So psychologically, subconsciously, 
I thought, well, he could beat me. He could yell at me, financially control me, sexually assault me, but cheat on me. I lost my mind. I mean, I started crying <laughs> well, nonstop, drinking nonstop. I would like drink a bottle of makers to myself and just throw up and be upset. And so he said, why don't you take a break and you can go back to LA or go home and visit your family for a little bit. And I just never came back. And then my last breaking point was when he was still controlling me, but he started to date somebody else. And this woman contacted me roughly November of 2015 and said, Paul just put my head through a glass window. I am taking this to the police and I wanted to let you know and reach out. And I'm so sorry for what you've experienced. So she was with him for a few months and I was with him for four years. And, and that was when I had a decision to make. I can either jump on board and help her and take my power back and speak up against what happened to me and tell people what happened to me, or I could stay silent and still let him manipulate me. And I chose to speak up. And uh, I actually took out a lawsuit against him and uh, she continued her lawsuit. And um, lo and behold, you know, I was able to take my power back because I decided to speak up and not let that fear overcome me. Wow. So the both of you teamed up in a way and spoke out together. That's mm -hmm. quite incredible, really. And that shows, doesn't it, that actually when there is a helping hand, when someone actually understands that actually, you know, you took that as an escape route to get out. So were your legal cases successful then? Was it something that the courts recognized? It, it was something that the courts recognized. And in most countries, even um, developing nations where, where we work with unsilenced voices, domestic abuse is recognized. Oftentimes they do victim blaming and there's some things that need to change, of course, with the courts. But we were successful. All I can actually legally say about it is that he and I settled. And then with the other case, he had some repercussions that happened. Wow. So justice was done. So that's always good to know. Yes. So for those people listening, thinking, you know, I think maybe I'm in an abusive relationship. Sometimes it's really hard to know. You can be in a relationship, like you said, and it doesn't start out like that. Like at the beginning, you were talking there about it being fantastic and trips and nice dinners. The love bombing, you know, is what it's known as, I guess. So it's almost too good to be true. But you want to believe it, right? You want to fall in love and it's that kind of thing. So you're swept along with it. So that's kind of how we get into those relationships. But then when it starts to dawn on us over a period of time, it's sort of chipping away on our boundaries, isn't it? It doesn't happen at day one. No, no, it doesn't happen on day one. And it takes some time for them to psychologically break us down. And then at that point, when the physical violence starts or the emotional violence escalates, we're already so broken down that we start to blame ourselves. They gaslight us, meaning that Paul would make me think that what I remembered or believed was incorrect. And mm -hmm. my self-confidence was very, very low. He would tell me I was fat, cellulite on my butt. I was no good for anything. Wouldn't let me have a job, but then would condemn me for not working. Tell me when and where I could drive a car or where I could go, who I could hang out with. And it did start very slow. You know, he started by telling me, you know, you're absolutely beautiful, but why don't you do this? Or you're so talented, 
but why are you wasting your time? For me, I like to go to church. So I was going to a church in Hollywood at the time. And he said, well, why would you want to end up like anybody there? So he would manipulate me to believe that what I was doing was wrong. And slowly but surely, that escalated into more emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and physical violence. And the cycle of domestic violence goes from walking on eggshells, and that's where I started, to a big blow up, whether it's sexually, physically, emotionally, and then that apology stage. So oftentimes, after I would be either brutally beat or severely yelled at and spit on and you name it, he would apologize. I'm so sorry, Michelle. I love you so much. I promise I will never do it again. And those instances lasted, you know, for months here and there. And then from there, it grew into weeks. And I just began to understand that this was what my life was. And I accepted it because I really believed that he would change. I think that that sort of sort of almost like a, a fishing hook. So you sort of you know you get reeled in with the apology. You get reeled in. It's all going to be okay. They made a mistake, and being empathetic and loving them so much, you just want to say, okay, we'll we'll give you a second chance. You deserve a second chance. You're obviously upset, or I know why you did it. I get it. You had a tough childhood, or you had a bad day. You know, we, anything not to have to face the reality of what's going on. And we, we kind of normalize it or even minimalize it, don't we? So that it becomes okay and acceptable. Yeah. And there were red flags in the beginning. You know, he uh, started controlling me very early on, you know, saying, oh, you don't have to work. I can take care of you. Making things sound better than they really were. We would go out and he would tell me what he was going to order for me. He wouldn't allow me to have a voice. He started talking to me and his employees and other people in his life negatively and harshly. And the great thing about this day and age is we have these cell phones, right? So all we have to do is Google that person. Well, I didn't Google that person. And when you Google or use some type of platform online to investigate who this person really is, things will pop up you know, comments about how he or she is not very nice and cruel. They're liars or cheaters. You can find out this information. And I just didn't do my due diligence in the beginning to find out that information. Mm. Later on, you know, his friends even came up to me and one friend in particular, after I had escaped that relationship, he said, you know, I really tried to warn you. And that's the interesting thing. We we often, especially in the early throes of a relationship, and if there's love bombing going on, you know, we don't want to hear it. They might even tell us. You know, one of the lessons is, you know, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. Don't think, oh, he's just saying that, or she's just saying that. I can change them. When they get to know me, they won't do that again. Well, we often that's the writing on the wall and the red flags that you're talking about, right? You can't change anybody. And see, with me, I thought that, you know, if I just stayed with him, then I could encourage him to change his ways. We could go through counseling together, which is not a very good idea to do couples counseling with a narcissistic. <laughs> no, uh, no, not at all. But you know, internally, I'm like, he relies on me. I'm the only one that can understand him. He's not going to change though. It really <laughs> takes him or the abuser to put in an effort, understand, okay, I have childhood trauma. I have trauma from my adolescence that is causing me to lash out to the people I love the most. 
I need to personally get help. Now, if you tell that abuser to go get help, he ain't going to listen. But if he realizes it, then there is hope. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's a really good point. You know, it has to come from them. You know, you can't change somebody. You can't make them do something they don't want to do. So can you tell us a bit about the impact that all that abuse had on you over those years? So my mom and dad raised me to be very self-confident and self-aware and not care about what other people thought or said. And when I was with Paul, I learned to not speak my mind as often and really took in a lot of the negative comments that he said. So when I left, it was really difficult for me to accept compliments. You're beautiful. You've got this. You're pretty. You're independent. You name it. It was very, very hard. And then it was really difficult for me to realize that there are good men out there. And it took me about I want to say eight or nine months after escaping that relationship, when I started to date a guy who was absolutely wonderful to me. And he really made me feel like I could be loved again. And in the beginning, I was scared to even drive in the same car with him because that's when Paul would lash out at me and physically punch me against the window. And uh, he was so much better. And we didn't make it. He's my best friend right now. His name is Dan. Best friend right now. Um, We didn't make it for logistical reasons. You know, he's way younger than me and, and we're just at different stages in our life, but he made me feel beautiful again. And, you know, I started to read good books. I started to listen to amazing podcasts and learn that I wasn't alone. And Using my voice was a positive thing to make sustainable change surrounding this epidemic worldwide. And that's when I started to realize what Paul said to me and what Paul did to me is not normal. And I do not have to believe it. Absolutely. Sometimes it is that contrast effect, isn't it, that makes you really realize yeah, what you've been through before just wasn't okay. But because you were in it and for all the reasons we've discussed, you stayed there. So if you're coming out of this or you're dealing with the trauma, because it is trauma, right? To come out of a relationship like that, you you will have experienced trauma, whether there was actual violence or it was emotional, whatever kind of abuse it was, there is trauma from that. So what would you say are your top tips for helping people now to move on and get over that trauma? So emotional abuse actually has longer lasting implications than that of physical violence. And a lot of the reason is, is because we internalize what somebody says to us. We think about it over and over and over again. The physical violence, the bruises heal. The emotional abuse, it takes longer for the internal bruises to heal. Mm. So if you're trapped in a relationship and you gather the strength to break free you will have PTSD. You will have trauma, like you said, Sarah. And in order to overcome, you have to start implementing positive things in your life. So with my coaching business, we teach a five-step process, which I can go over very quickly, overcome their challenges. And the first step is recognize. You first have to recognize, realize, and understand what it is that you're going through or that you went 
through. Oftentimes people don't even want to see it. So they push down their emotions. They push down what happened to them. They don't speak up about it. They don't go to therapy. They don't read. They don't write. So then it's held within their body, right? So you first have to realize it. The second step is thoughts, elevating your thinking process, understanding that what he said or she said has no implication on your own mind. They cannot tell you how to think. So it's putting in great books, like I said, and great podcasts, right? Listening to things that make you think positive about your life. Think positive. Okay, he's he's not right. I can overcome. I am beautiful. Thinking positive, right? So first is recognize, second is thoughts. The third step is feelings. Now, oftentimes people, like I said in the beginning, they like to push their feelings and emotions down. Well, we teach a philosophy, you have to feel in order to heal. And what that means is you actually have to express your emotions, you have to get it out. Mm -hmm. So it's very similar to say a bottle of water, right? It's filled with water, let's say that that is negative emotions, like you feel worthless, I feel like crap, crummy, you name it, right? You start to dwindle that down. You express yourself. You write it out. You get out emotions. Then you start to make room for positivity. So that positivity will start coming in uh, via surrounding yourself with amazing people, people who will uplift you, making sure that you're connecting with mentors and therapists and counselors and, and people that can really help you. And then you start to feel better. You don't wake up every day feeling like crap. You wake up every now and then and you start to be like, okay, you know, it's sunny outside. And then from there, you can start taking some action. So the next step would be words, right? Using positive affirmations. I am affirmations. I am an achiever. I am beautiful. I am talented. I remember I used to do Amway way back in the day, which is a, like a multi-level marketing company. And uh, I used to listen to the leadership talk from stage. And they trained us very early on to write positive I ams around our house, post-its in your office, car, whatever. I took red lipstick and wrote it on my bathroom mirror, right? I am a diamond. Well, I didn't make it to diamond in Amway, but I made it to diamond in my personal life. And then from there, it's the action steps, right? It's the acknowledging yourself, giving yourself time to rest, eat, sleep, walk, exercise, read, write, all of these action steps. And then really understanding that you can't do it alone. Nobody can do it alone and reaching out for help. Whether that is traditional or non-traditional therapies, whether that is being on summits and podcasts or listening to great leaders, reading great books, but reaching out for help. So again, yeah. the five steps, recognize, thoughts, feelings, words, then actions. And you can find that on my website for, for complimentary for free at michellejewsbury.com. Oh, excellent. Well, I hope people go along to your website and check that out because I know there's a lot more detail on that as well, isn't there? When you go through yeah. that document, there's some really useful things in there that will really help. I guess one of the questions that I know people who are listening will be, will be asking or thinking to themselves is, I won't believe any of that. 
I won't believe saying I am great, I am beautiful, because I've had years of of not or being told that I'm not and not believing it myself. Yeah, but if you tell yourself over and over and over again, then you start to believe it. So in the mm. beginning, it's going to be a tug of war. You know, in the beginning, it's going to be difficult. It's not an easy journey. It wasn't an easy journey when you were involved in the abusive relationship. And it's not an easy journey to escape and recover. But when you do, it's worth it. So you have to put in the effort in order to overcome that trauma. And that effort is, you know, I hate to say this, I don't like to say this, but fake it till you make it. But really learning, you know, to express yourself, feel those emotions, feel the pain, cry. We do a lot of, I do a lot of private coaching. I love private coaching. It's a lot of fun for me, but we guide our clients through their early childhood to adolescence and then where they are now. And then figuring out what their dreams and visions are and how they want to turn their, their trauma into transformation and how they can overcome their challenges to create even more success in their life, whether it's personal or business success. And we help them do that, but it is, you have to put in the effort. Yeah. And I think that's important because it's going to push you out of your comfort zone to do these things that you're going to be uncomfortable because it's something that you haven't been used to for such a long time, but that's okay to know that you're not going to believe it straight away is going to be tough. But the more you practice it, the more, as you say, you take action, your fifth point, then it becomes more of a reality. Then you start to shift that balance between what was and then what is becoming. And I think that's really important. Yeah. I love that. I love it. And getting a good team around you, you know, as well as experts, but the friends that are going to support you and the friends that are going to help you focus on the future rather than on the past, which, you know, sometimes friends, very well-meaning, very loving, but they were emotionally involved in that relationship as well. So maybe they've got some hurt or they want revenge on your ex because they are also, you know, maybe they welcomed him into the family or her into the family. Maybe they were friends with them too. So it's about choosing the right team, isn't it? Not just any team. Yeah, you have to choose the right team. And it's like with business. If you're trying to start a new business and you talk to your neighbor, say your neighbor, Sally, and Sally says, you can't do that because you're not educated enough. Well, if you listen to what Sally says, then you're going to internalize it. You're going to think maybe she's right. Maybe I can't be successful. I'm not equipped to do that. Well, it's the same thing with recovering from trauma and abuse. You can't listen to the naysayers. It was your fault. Things like that, that oftentimes people say, because it's never your fault. I don't care what you wore, what you said, what you did. It is never your fault for being abused. And you have to learn to accept the words from people that you cherish and care about that also cherish and care about you and want to see you succeed. Wow, that has actually made me emotional. It just that, you know, it's not your fault. It's never your fault. And I'm sure a lot of my listeners will really appreciate hearing that, Michelle, because sometimes, you know, sometimes it's never said. Sometimes, you know, we never hear it. What do you think about the stigma that, surrounds abuse you know a lot of people come out of that relationship and then are embarrassed or humiliated and 
you know, it doesn't always stem from some adverse childhood experience. You know, sometimes, you know, someone misrepresented themselves and we got caught up in that. Um, and you're know, dealing with the fallout and the shame. How do you recommend people cope with that? You know, I blamed myself in the beginning when I escaped my abusive relationship. I, uh, I was like, how did you allow yourself to stay? Why couldn't you help him? Why couldn't you fix him? I blamed myself. Um, but it's overcoming that blame because what we're doing is self victim blaming. And you have to understand that it's not your fault. You got yourself trapped in that relationship, but that other person you have no control over. So there is a stigma, especially in developing nations, where it was the victim's fault for being abused or raped or tormented. Maybe she deserved it or he deserved it. But that type of thinking is very old school, right? It's very Mm. um, not aligned with what is factual, And what is factual is the reason why somebody lashes out is because of their own traumas, their own abuses, their own emotional pain, and they lash out and do things against you because they're trying to cope. Now, there's also a cultural difference. So if you, I've visited a lot of different countries uh, from India to Guatemala to places in Africa and Europe and uh, America and, and Mexico, I mean, all over the place. And, and the common theme is that if you don't know something, then you don't know it, right? So in, um, in Ghana, for example, when we work in Ghana, uh, there's a tribe in the northern part of Ghana where we went at, to educate the women about domestic violence and their rights and morals and values. And, and the women came up to us and said, well, if my husband doesn't beat me, it means that he doesn't love me. Wow, that is and, crazy. And the reason it is, but the reason why they think that is because it's conditioned, right? It's a cultural um, idea and philosophy that has been conditioned into their, um, their, their growing up and adolescence and, and the way that their parents were. So in order to change that conditioning, we have to come in and educate them saying it's never okay to be beat or abused. And we also have to educate the men saying that Mm. this is not right, right? Because you don't know what you don't know. So if the boys are being raised to beat their wives, then that's what they're going to do. So you have to come in and say, that's actually not accurate. You use your words to get what you want, not your fists. Wow. And how is your project going out there? Amazing, actually. Uh, So in Sierra Leone, we are uh, expanding rapidly. We have a team on the ground. We've partnered with a lot of different uh, Sierra Leonean-led organizations. Uh, We help and rescue girls who are selling themselves on the streets as sex workers, go through vocational training. We do three sensitizations per month uh, for village workers, uh, village people, for market workers, for um, sex workers, and educating them about abuse and what it means for equality, right? And what it means for a woman not to be abused. And it's, it's going phenomenal. In Ghana, we've partnered with an organization called the ARC Foundation, and they teach and help 
these women to actually press charges against their abuser because it is recognized in Accra that domestic violence is a crime, but they're trying to also educate not to victim blame. So it's all through education. And in Rwanda, we're doing sensitizations, you know, uh, giving care packages to these women who are escaping abusive relationships and empowering them, educating them that they can achieve. They don't have to have a husband or their man with them, um, but they can sew and they can bake. They can sell other things in order to keep them and their children alive. So it's, it's going very well. It's not necessarily a fast process, mm. but we are definitely changing thousands of people's lives. It's really interesting because especially right now with the pandemic, you know, I'm the patron of a domestic abuse charity here in the UK called the Dash Charity. And they've seen an increase in calls to their to their um, support lines by over 300%. And, you know, at the moment in the UK, the stats are pretty horrific that uh, 30% of domestic violence that happens in the UK happens within three months of separation when the perpetrator is starting to lose control over you because you're leaving, that's when the risk really increases. So it's a very serious situation. And if you are in that situation, it, it has to be taken very seriously and you have to make sure you're safe and reach out to local charities. I know in the UK, we have Women's Aid. We have local charities as well, like the Dash Charity, who is also under the umbrella of Women's Aid that you can reach out to over here. What sort of support do you have in the US? Very similar. Yeah, very similar support. Um, uh, Most of the murders that happen with domestic violence are because the woman is leaving. And that is when the violence escalates and the man um, perpetrates her even further. and, And oftentimes she loses her life. Well, in order to escape that relationship, you have to make a plan. And with that plan, you also need to reach out for help. And in developed countries like the UK, like most places in Europe and Australia and the United States, there are resources in every state to help you. And when you escape, don't escape and go to your sister's house or don't escape and go someplace where he knows you're going to go, but contact these shelters, go to the shelter, Go to the police and get a restraining order. That is of utmost importance because when you start to involve the police, if something were to happen to you, they know where to look. If you're in a developing country, most of these developing nations are starting to recognize domestic violence as a crime. So go to the police. And there are organizations in most countries to try to combat domestic violence, sexual abuse, and human trafficking. Find one of those organizations. Don't go up and tell your abuser, hey, I'm going to leave you because then he could attack you. Do it behind closed doors. I um, I remember I... I left my abuser like six or seven different times and that's normal, right? You typically leave five to eight different times before you finally escape the relationship because you keep wanting to go back. You keep believing the lies and the apology stage. Well, uh, one of the times I remember Paul was at work and I knew I had to get out because I, um, I was severely beat just like a week or two prior to that, black and blue, I still had a big black eye and, and I was shaking. 
I was so scared. I was shaking, but I felt inside of me that I had to get out now. So I didn't call him. I didn't text him. I didn't tell him anything. I grabbed the clothes out of my closet, threw them in my car, didn't fold any, just threw them in my car and left and drove away. And there was a sense of relief when I was finally on the road that he didn't come home and see me because it could have potentially been very, very harmful if he saw me trying to leave. But do it when you know he's not going to be around. Do it when you know that you've got a support system around you and a place for you to go. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think it's also important to note that it doesn't have to have been violent to then become one of the murder statistics because quite often it's emotional abuse and that will escalate to physical violence when the the victim's left or is in the process of leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, getting the police involved really, really does help. Um, I don't know how much I can emphasize that, mm. but especially during COVID, uh, like you said, domestic violence is increasing. Human trafficking is increasing. Child abuse rape. It's all increasing because we're all stuck at home. Well, there's hotels open. There are shelters open. There are places for you to reach out. You know, maybe when he goes out for his walk, you can call and get assistance from some somebody or, or some place. Um, but it is increasing because there's more time on abusers' hands. There, um, you know, people are getting annoyed with each other quicker. They're bored. So just recognizing what you're going through and then reaching out for help. I think that's really good advice, really. It, and to take this very seriously is, is very important. So I, yeah, absolutely. What do you think about forgiveness? Because there's a big debate, isn't there, about how do you move on? Do you have to forgive, do you believe, to be able to move on? Is that something that is fundamental? Because I know a lot of people listening might struggle with that concept. Well, you know, forgiveness sometimes can take years or it can never happen. So I'm going to give you uh, an example. Uh, My mother was abused when she was a child by her stepfather, severely abused, sexually, physically abused by her stepfather. My mom held on to that grudge her whole life. She never forgave him for what he did. And lo and behold, when she died, which was about a year and a half ago, she was still upset about what happened to her when she was a child. Now, forgiveness is not for the perpetrator or for the person who hurt you. Forgiveness is for yourself. Now, it's like a tight ball, right? This is the anger that we have for people. This is the, the resent and the, the, the fear and how they made us feel. Forgiveness is when you let go of your hands and almost not even care about them anymore. Um, it took me a long time to forgive Paul. I thought that he hurt me. He deserved a punishment. I was resentful. I was angry. I rewrote my first book like five different times because the first time I wrote it, I was really pissed off at him. Finally, I I realized it wasn't my fault. And he had a lot of emotional problems and a lot of psychological things that he had to deal with. Mm. He is not somebody I would ever want to see again be around again. 
but I definitely forgave him for what he did to me because I decided to let go of the grudge so I could open up myself to more positivity. If I hold on to the grudge, I'm constantly thinking about that negative circumstance or situation. So I Mm. do believe um, that forgiveness is key. And uh, forgiveness doesn't mean going back to your abuser. Forgiveness does not mean that it was okay by any means. Forgiveness is just a tool to set you free. I love that. I love that. It's important, isn't it? And sometimes we are the ones in our own way for moving on sometimes. Tough as it might be, that is sometimes the truth. Michelle, it's been amazing having you as a guest. I know that a lot of people listening would have got huge amounts of value and your story is incredibly inspiring. One of the questions I always ask my guests is, obviously my podcast is called Heartbreak to Happiness. So please share with us, what is happiness for you? Happiness is me waking up when I want to, going to the gym, not living in fear. I'm dating somebody right now who is absolutely amazing. I'm I'm going to the mountain tomorrow. We're going to go skiing together. And happiness is learning to be okay in my own skin again. And I think that that is key, right? In order to overcome trauma, in order to overcome the heartbreak of situations. Nobody's perfect. Everybody has some type of trauma or some type of heartbreak that has happened to them. When you really decide and really take the action steps to to overcome that, then you really will live in happiness. And that happiness, I, I get to work where I want. I get to speak to who I want. I have learned boundaries and learned to say no. And I really am I'm quite happy with the guy I'm dating right now too. So I mean it's it's nice. Oh, well, that's lovely. And I know that your passion just shines through. And, you know, that's a very inspiring story that, you know, obviously is already helping many, many people around the world. And the work you do is incredible. If people listening want to find out more about you, where can they go? Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, So if you go to my website, michellejewsbray.com, so it's M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, J-E-W-S-B-U-R-Y.com. You can find out information about me. You also can obtain the free gift for five steps to overcome obstacles and challenges. Um, If you would like information about the nonprofit, we need your help. We uh, need funding. We need volunteers. uh, We need fundraisers. uh, You name it. We need a lot of help with unsilenced voices. And we are currently looking for board members as well. So if you are on that that awesome level where you know you have had a successful life, you are doing work financially, you want to sit on a board and and really be in front of a curve and and make a huge change, please reach out. But you can find information at unsilencedvoices.org. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for being my guest today. You have been awesome and inspiring, as I knew you would be, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you so much, Sarah. I had a very, very good time. That's it for today's episode. Be sure to head over to michellejewsbury.com and unsilencedvoices.org to find out more about Michelle. And I look forward to you joining me on our next episode. That's it for today's episode of Heartbreak to Happiness. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review in iTunes will win the chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day, including exclusive one-on-one coaching with Sarah Davison herself. 
be sure to head on over to heartbreaktohappinesspodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Sara's Gift. Then join us on the next episode.